Hello, hello, hello. Chocolate, not chocolate, yep, tea. 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 With the fridge. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Wombat Radio. This evening, we're in Marrickville. We're speaking with. My name's Tian Baker. Cool. <laughs> what, are, what are you busy with, Tian? What are you thinking about? What are you working through? It's been a, it's been a weird, you know. I, I guess it never stopped being weird, but I guess lately, um, it's like a, it's like a really strange period, yeah, of like uh, thinking a lot about dying, thinking a lot about um, death and part and and I guess negotiating risk. Knowing how to affront risk. I'm talking particularly about. I've been thinking a lot about um, climate collapse or ap- apocalypse, um, civilization collapse. Um, <clears throat> I started a new project that I've been wanting to do forever. In fact, I feel like it sounds really lame, but like it's kind of like the project that I have like kind of been wanting to do for a long time. Um, for a few years, but project like it just hasn't really come up or whatever. Um, and so I'm kind of in the research applications phase of this project, which is always like so exciting um, to be in that phase, even though it's like not very stable. Um, but we're in kind of the second round of applications for a festival about anxiety. The whole festival is about anxiety. Yeah, it's, what's it called? Uh, it's called Art and Anxiety. I, d- I think it's like it's like the first time this festival has ever happened. I don't even know if I really if it's like a public thing. I don't, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But um, a friend and I um, decided to pitch a project about eco anxiety and how people are um, internalizing the threat of you know apocalyptic climate collapse. Um, and how they're like internalizing it and coping with that existential threat on a on a personal emotional level, but also how communities are choosing to respond to that as well. I mean, obviously, you got two different people. You're going to look at two different things, and you you probably come to the project for different reasons that overlap in a lot of ways. But for me, it's about um, how people are emotionally experiencing their like self or. How they how they are emotionally experiencing um, this kind of um, high this this uh, this highly threatening environment that we live in, but it's not like a very obvious threat, right? It's yeah, like so that's not something that you sense in human time or with your own bodily senses. It's something that you have to sense as a. As, as a, like a narrative of a community that you yeah, live within. Completely. Or like intellectually you have yeah. to like um, – but um, I mean I guess part of it is uh, I guess maybe I'm trying to argue that it's not necessarily something that you sense as a community or even intellectually because, I mean, tonight there's supposed to be a month's worth of rain falling outside. So I feel like even if you just have your eyes open now – you can see it. Whereas that wasn't a thing, you know, when I first moved to Sydney in 2008 or even like, I, I mean, yeah, I guess it, 
the changes have been rapid and they've been really felt quite sharply over the past four years. So what's going on with the project? So the project is about – I didn't even get to that, sorry. Um, We're just going to zoom out and in and out. then out and in. So this is the yeah. end. So the project is um, basically interviewing people in the community who, are, who believe that um, we are facing – either extinction or severe existential threat as a result of climate change and how people are dealing with that, Um, especially in an environment currently in Australia of like there's a lot of denial or inaction. Um, But if you actually look with your eyes, if you do any research, the threat of extinction is quite, I think it's quite real. Um, And so we're trying to reach out to people in the community who are also grappling with that existential threat. and, and have like, embodied it somehow. Yeah, who are you, um, you developing some sort of coping strategy that practically or emotionally to deal with that threat. So my collaborator is really interested in um, prepping, prepping techniques, whereas I'm really interested in, mainly I'm interested in people's imaginations and how they envision their future to be. And I'm particularly interested in asking people to enact for me, what how they think it's going to end. On, Basically enacting their death. Wow. On camera? On camera. Also, I mean, there's there's an on-camera element, there's an audio element where we just kind of want to talk to people about how they are experiencing <clears throat> the end, as I would put it. Um, I mean, part, like, you know, on, on my personal level, there's a part of me that's, I mean, I've, I spend a lot of time feeling really sad about the whole thing, but another part of me is like you know um maybe i'm really lucky to just be able to witness this because it's very unique it's a very unique time to be alive it's a very unique problem that we're um facing so maybe i'm really you know it's just maybe i'm just lucky to see the end and and when i say the end it's not necessarily that i think we're all gonna die you know, in one fell swoop or as a result of one or a few events, um, which, but I don't, I don't discount that. I guess um, in the nicest sense, I refer to the end as being the end of um, our society as we have come to understand it. Um, but in the most extreme example, the end is, you know, accepting that I'm not going to live out my full lifespan and and none of us or a lot of us aren't so it's a spectrum yeah and then in in parts of the world the full lifespan has gone from 30 to 40 to 80 to 100 years that you would be expected as a woman in australia to live to nearly 100 Mm -hmm. and then that lifespan is going to come back down yeah yeah so a lot of some people are saying so part of this journey, I guess, of research has been joining online communities who are really active and talk about, um, they call themselves support groups and they talk and they support each other through um, the extinction process. Um, and they, re- they believe extinction is, it's, it's, it's going to happen. It's not reversible. It's inevitability. Um, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that, but um you know, I think about it a lot. Mm. So, um, there's a beautiful map that uh, branches out like a tree of life. I'll show you that it 
blossoms out and becomes specialized and adapted life forms and then some of those continue on and the rest of them become extinct and it keeps doing that in the algae and then in the sea creatures and then in the land mm-hmm. creatures and with each mass extinction mm. there is no less life on earth but it is not the life that was there mm-hmm. and i wonder if a part like a large part of the anxiety around extinction of what is us is some kind of cultural extinction as well completely i think that can't be discounted i think we should also um part of the my journey of the past few months has been i guess acknowledging and being able to come to terms with that it could be us as existentially in terms of our lives um and that you know i might not you know, I might not live past, you know, 50 or whatever. I can't expect to have a stable life like my parents did, a stable full life where I see children and grandchildren. I guess in a lot of ways um, the past period of my life has been kind of letting go of that expectation that I will have those things. Um, and so there's been a lot, I guess, a lot of li- uh, um, loss and grief that I've been going through. Like anticipatory grief yeah or just um i guess it's a you know it's a coping mechanism because you set yourself up for it so when to make it easier to deal with i guess maybe you know it's it's not even that different from the denialists and that you just find a mechanism and you cling to it Mm. perhaps to be able to cope with um the threat maybe maybe you know maybe i am in some ways, maybe I'm distanced from reality, but I feel like I'm considering all the possible options and even even the really bad ones. And I'm emotionally um, coming to terms with them. And, and I don't think I'm alone in this, which has been the other amazing thing. It's kind of like, I don't know if, like I was just thinking about the other day, like the kind of... Um, once I had, I finished a really big project in May and once I had the time to think about these things and I had the opportunity through meeting this collaborator and starting this project, um, it just kind of all came coming out and it was kind of like <laughs> in the, in the, like this, I, I was thinking the other day, I was like, this is probably the closest I can, I can ever come to like coming out of the closet or something in that like the sudden value shift and this feeling like this feeling um that you've kind of always had that you can kind of now divulge in or actually like um yeah be honest with people about so that's what's been happening basically and then that has repercussions in my daily life because obviously other people are not seeing the threat in the way that I am. So life is continuing as normal. Mm. I still need to live. So, you know, um, I talk, talk, yeah, so I kind of work this job and I'm like, it's not a bad job, but I spend a lot of my time feeling, yeah, really upset that I, I'm not doing, you know, I just look, I work in front of a window and I just look outside and I'm like, the weather's fucked like just look at the weather like and then I'm like the crazy person like no one no one else like I come in I'm like hey guys did you know that today we 
you know, like, no, 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 there's like a, there's a huge crack in the ice and like just like the daily news in, in our continuing climate crisis. And like, I don't know, people don't, people don't want to engage and it's like this really alienated experience to go to work and it's just overall been a bit shitty, I guess. Bummer. <laughs> Could it, be much it, worse. It would be like anything, any, any situation that you are more sensitive to or attuned to than the people that you're spending time around, you become the, like you are not sensitive to it, you are oversensitive to it. And you're not attuned to it, you're obsessed by it. And you're not aware of it, you're inventing it. And that is almost like the road that you walk by allowing yourself to be open to something that is not um, that is not popular yeah it's it isn't popular um i was just talking about this with chris today my partner and he was like you know even just mentioning it is like this like really it seems like this really political statement it's almost like saying you're a communist like back in the day you know what i mean wow, like yeah. it's like opening yourself point. up to all this criticism because and it can't help but be a condemnation of capitalism yeah you just like by the fact that you're saying like i'm dissatisfied with this system yeah i don't think it's gonna work what do you guys think it's like it really is you know there is a stigma attached to it and i'm not one to say that you know freely about stuff but um I guess, you know, I, I think there is, I think people don't want to engage. Mm. They don't necessarily, a lot of people don't really want to engage with the possibility of that they won't have the kind of life that their parents had. Mm. Um, they don't want to come to terms with that grief, but I feel like everyone can feel it. You have any conversation with anyone and there's a lot of pessimism. People are like, yeah, it's all fucked. You know, it's all, it's all going downhill. Like that's, but but to actually engage with it and be like, what does downhill look like? What does that mean for you? Um, is, an, is another step that I don't feel like a lot of people are ready to go down. Some people are really, really are. Um, you feel like that's uh, by engaging with it through art practice is like a step for you? Completely. Yeah, absolutely. Like, And then it becomes generative rather than pessimistic. Yeah, I mean, I don't... I try not to harbour too much hope in that I think, you know, I, I, fa I found, I guess we are talking about this before, like I, f I find a lot of liberation in acknowledging how bad things are mm. and coming to terms with them and it just coming to terms with the climate truth um, and the possibilities. So um, I find that really comforting, but some people find hope comforting. I, you know, that's cool. Like, um, sorry, what was your question? I've found a box of things that I kept from when I moved out of home at 17 last week and one of the things that I found was a card that someone gave me encouraging me to let God in and I was going to read it out I was going to quote it but I can't find the picture there um Yeah, but the, I think the, my point is that they had a truth that they wanted me to have so that my life could be 
better so that I could approach the world with their truth. And so it's just a really... Uh, and I responded to them in the way that you're talking about people responding to you. Whereas like, actually that's not the truth that I want to live by because I can't see it. And the it for them was God and the it for you is climate collapse. But the it still is something so much greater than us in a society that is so complex that there just can't be a truth unless there's like complete oppressive authoritarianism. I think if I have understood what you said correctly, I think in a lot of ways, maybe maybe I don't understand properly, but I feel like maybe that's a flawed analogy in that there's a lot of science obviously backing yes, that's true climate that is collapse. a good point um there's a lot of people who have done a lot of research into it who are saying that the outlook is very grim i guess i'm just thinking about having to live day to day with with a belief system that is a counter narrative mm-hmm. and how you still be your your best fullest happiest person you're not living now with the pain of the future but that you're also not oblivious. Yeah, uh, you're right. That is a, that that is the struggle. Actually, yeah. you're completely right. You've hit the nail of what is. Um, I guess when you ask me what's going on, that's what's going on. Mm. That's the nail of it. Is like, how do I live my life? Kind of coming to terms with, um, yeah, the the very dire possibilities in front of us, mm. um, and how do I maintain be functional but also engage with um this reality so yeah the but i in- guess through art projects yeah pretty much yeah that's it <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome just like being an artist and like being like no i'm gonna explore this <laughs> and pay me to do it even just a little bit <laughs> <laughs> all right so how do you do? What do you do? You're like, all right, there's this thing that I'm dealing with and I'm not the only one, but it's still like a deal. And so it needs to be dealt with. I need to ride out to meet it. What does that look like? Are you talking about that specific exhibition? Yeah, or, or any other art project where you find something and you're like, hey, I've got to deal with this. Yeah. Um, specifically, my approach is like, uh, I guess I... I kind of do what you do right now. This is like an uncomfortable reversal. Not uncomfortable, but it is a reversal because I guess historically and just in the way that I function, I um, my work, I guess, is not really about – it's not very introspective. I just go out and meet lots of people and I try to render their experiences in a way that I think is authentic but also contributes to – the greater narrative of mm. their life mm. and their socio-political context and to what I'm trying to say about their life. So whether that be through sound, interviews, we're talking about earlier about podcasts. But I guess that happens twice, doesn't it? It happens when they tell you the story, then that means that they have to solidify it so that they can tell it to you. Mm-hmm. And then it happens again when you render it. Mm, yeah. It gets filtered, I guess. Yeah. Or... Um, or like as soon as something's not you, you can see it. Yeah. This is the difference that I often find between dancers or choreographers who are dancing their own work uh, to when I 
make a soundscape mm-hmm. for a, a piece or a soundtrack and then the operator operates the cue lab and I get to sit in the audience and listen. But when you're the choreographer and you're performing in it, yeah, yeah, it's always you. You never separate it yeah. from yourself. And so the, the ability to separate your narrative from yourself for long enough to hear yourself, that's not a small service. No. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess that I'm, you know, I guess the strength in what I try to do is actually just provide people with that macro context by being the one to engage with them to try to understand their story to try and represent it authentically um so um i guess in terms of what we're talking about now the um the aim is to just yeah go there's lots of kind of communities or people who are suffering from eco-anxiety in their lives um, and it's the aim is to find those people, meet them, talk to them, and then just kind of see what happens. I think the imagination process is um, vital, at, especially at this point of where we are in our climate change journey as a race because what science is saying, lots of things, no one really knows how it's going to turn, turn out. We're in this kind of like science fiction zone where it's like, your imagine like whatever you imagine could possibly happen. So I'm really interested in exploring people's visions of how they think it's going to all go down and how they think, you know, they might meet their maker or whatever. So it's like imagination, emotional experience. The way we're um, p- positing the exhibition is that we're a support group mm-hmm. we're, um, of like, yeah, we're, we're a support group for people who um, – want to explore their eco anxiety and we support people by collecting different responses and making it into a soundscape or a video work so that people can reflect on how they approaching the threat cool have you gained any insight how to somehow be specific Let me start that again. When I think about anxiety, it's not separated into genres within myself and how I feel it. Economic anxiety is right there next to family and love and health and safety and hunger and environment. Like Anxiety is actually the thing that's just like waiting on the sidelines ready for anything that you can jump on and get a ride with. And so I wonder where you've um, dipping into other forms of anxiety or other uh, stimulators of anxiety and how you're approaching like just general body anxiety or... um, That's a good point. I think that's the right question to ask because I don't really know. I feel like I just have to like start talking to people and then... I mean, when you're talking about something as comprehensive and wide-reaching Shit. and yeah, non... There's not much more comprehensive, is there? Yeah, there's nothing more massive than climate collapse. So, I mean, a lot... I mean, some people I've even read have theorised that um, the rise in anxiety in um, Western culture like directly correlates, correlates not, not necessarily is caused by eco-anxiety. So, I mean, there's... Anyway, the the point is, 
I don't know how you delineate those things. Um, I think people's approach to their eco-anxiety can be really wrapped up in their identity and their self might also not be. Mm. It's just like a very personal journey. So I don't know, basically. Great. What a great place to be <laughs> and what a great reason to do art. <laughs> Being like, I don't know this thing. Yeah, I've got to go out and deal with it. No, that's so it though. That's what, I mean, that is the value in um, the art space is that it's like, it's the only place in, and, it, and it, look, this is clutching at straws to some extent because it's sometimes it really isn't this, but it is like one of the few places where you can be like, I don't know about this thing. I want to know. I'm just, I'm going to go and check it out. And you're like, it's not really necessarily outcome focused all the time. It's open to failure. People, and there's just like all these other people who are like, yeah, cool. I don't know about that. Just look at it. And then they support you. And it's like, it's one of the only places in life where you have the, you know, the allowance to do that. It's, I can't, it can't be underestimated the value of having that place. Can you talk to me a little bit about your, one of your finished projects, a project that you've had to deal with and then you've started and then you've done all the research and then you finished it and then you presented it and you feel like, okay, I'm, I'm good. Um, well, the one I finished in May, which I, to be technically, I still wouldn't call finished because there's a whole like other flanking side to it that I need to look at. But, um, uh, basically it started with that question of like YouTubers, what the hell crazy hobby is that? Why would you do that? It's like um, that, that MIA song, what's up with that? And it's like borders, what's up yeah. with that? Legitimate question. Legitimate, Legitimate question. <laughs> yeah. I just like watch YouTube and I'd be like, these people are amazing. Who are they? Um, so the whole project was about going and meeting Australian YouTubers and documenting their offline realities um, in a series of video portraits. There was another, I had a collaborator and she had a very different approach to it, um, but we exhibited in, in the same space. Her approach was documenting the, you know, the symbology behind their pursuit for fame. So she would take assets from their video, their YouTube channels and make portraits that represented, you know, what like their channel was. Whereas I was looking at, um, you know, what the, uh, what a career YouTuber's life actually looks like in a very banal sense. Like I asked one of my, my favorite portrait actually of all of them was I asked a guy to, who's like, yeah, I asked one of the YouTubers to be like, Hey, show me how you watch TV. And then he just like laid on the couch with his wife. And um, I guess I wanted to highlight how like lonely that journey, uh, well, that pursuit for online fame is and how, um, yeah, how lonely it is and how it highlights in, in almost all the YouTubers we worked with, their YouTube practice came from a place of like, really deep loss and loneliness and that that ultimately was the main driver behind their practice um 
so it was about performing that loss and the, and as the main motivator behind their channel and it also intersected with their daily life so so did you specifically ask them to perform their loss or did you ask them to perform their banality and then you recorded and rendered it as loss as the loss. latter yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah i think maybe there was some sort of unethical aspect to the work in that uh i uh, sorry i didn't mean that I, I guess what i was going back was that like two level thing where you you ask somebody to tell you their story yeah and then you let it exist outside of them so that so it becomes something else so it becomes a story rather mm -hmm. than yeah yeah that's pretty much precisely it in that uh, yeah, I would ask people to tell me their story and it just it kind of always hit the same marks. Mm. It becomes a cultural asset, doesn't it? Somehow, like, you're a cult... You're some kind of... What do I mean by that? That something is somebody and they should be treated with respect and consideration and not exposed. But then when you can when you can spend time with them enough to get just the parts that can share the feeling or the reality of that life, then other people get to engage with it without exposing that person. Yeah, are you saying it's like kind of protecting them in some way yeah. as making them part of a greater dialogue? Yeah, I Maybe. definitely felt that about the blokes project that I've been mm. doing that a question we constantly get from presenters is whether the, we're going to put the blokes on stage. And I think that that's... Um, the, and what the question should be is, are any of the blokes interested in being on stage? Not whether the art needs it or whether we want it. It's like these people who have not asked for attention or the limelight, who are giving us their time and letting us into their world. Um, and then the answer is no, they that is not their reality. They do not want attention, they do not want to be uh, revealed, and they do not want to be scrutinized. But what we can do as performers or as artists mm -hmm. is to be exposed and then embody and then present a rendering so that there's another more nuanced narrative out there that people can have as an option. Yeah, that makes sense. I think the unique thing about the YouTube community, though, was how just in the kind of person who would maintain a multi-year spanning channel that had millions and millions of views, mm. how willing they were to be exposed. Like, that was the interesting thing. Yeah. They were so open to um, telling us private details. They didn't seem to have boundaries of what they thought they didn't want people to see or not see and that I was very sensitive to it because I was like well this is in a lot of in some cases your livelihood maybe you want to protect your image or whatever for your audience but the way that they are the kind of fame that they're pursuing is so frank um so completely honest they were really comfortable with us disclosing all kinds of details about them and I asked them before we did for example, one girl um, got really sick. She she became a YouTuber because she um, 
got really sick in year 12 um, and had to like leave school and kind of worked at KFC for ages and was just bored her out of her mind. And I was like, can I disclose something like that? She was like, yeah, I don't, whatever, you know. So it was a unique group of people to work with, really. Mm. My issue with that project is that, and what it's kind of missing as compared to the project I was telling you about earlier is that um, I don't, you know, I never had like a hypothesis or anything that I was really trying to say. I was more just like, it was just curiosity, really. I was like, no one's really paid attention to these people. What they do is quite extraordinary. Let's just check them out. That's really what it was. Do you have other ideas like that that are on the back burner? You're like, maybe a project, maybe not. All the time. <laughs> like, like I what? Just, I want to do a whole series on um, divorced dads. <laughs> it's like when you're telling me about your blokes project. Mm-hmm. Um, because I grew up in, with a single father and the experience of being a single farmer, a single father farmer in a place like Darwin with like a teenage daughter mm. um, is this like, I, you know, I cannot separate my identity from that. It was just like I can't unsee that um, aspect of masculinity played out in front of me, you know. Um, and so... And just how, I mean, I, I, we didn't talk about it at the time, but I really related to what you were telling me about the Top Blokes Project because, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it is bullshit. Like, my dad, uh, you know, wife left him because he was a workaholic, was a workaholic because of this generational expectation passed down from his father who got it from his own his father that you know men work they don't engage in emotions they don't engage in family time um so that was very much the culture of the men in the family and then you know wife leaves him left with teenage girl uh and just seeing him struggle, like his mas- his kind of masculinity struggle up against those, that conflict. Um, yeah, I mean, I just, yeah, it's, I, it's, you know, it's bullshit. It's bullshit being an Australian man. It really is. It's, so anyway, so that that's one project that I want to do is about divorced dads and, you know, because he, anyway, they're, they're just, a lot of them just have a real rough time in a way that women don't. Um, yeah, that's one example, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So everyone, everyone has a rough time when the thing that they have become, because that's what they are expected to become, is no longer relevant or useful, or in a lot of time, in a lot of ways, acceptable. Actually. Yeah, it's not appropriate. It's no longer. You became exactly what we asked you to be, but that is no longer appropriate. Yeah. And what we would like is for you to access skills that you don't have mm-hmm. <laughs> to adapt. Precisely, actually. Yeah. That's it. And some men, yeah, they just they can't adapt to that challenge. Yeah. Which, well, yeah. 
Which is not to say poor them, it's to say like unfortunately there's some screwed up shit about how to do that that leaves that leads on to other things being screwed up as well. Like I'm sure no, now I'm making assumptions. Maybe I should just ask it as a question that it was not an easy decision for somebody to leave somebody because they're a workaholic. That's like that's a decision made out of unhappiness as well. Oh, com- completely. I don't, to be honest, I don't even know really that is my understanding of the situation. I don't know why, how, I don't actually know the full details, but from what I've gathered, mm-hmm. that's why. And, you know, yeah, that's that's, a, that's not an easy thing to go through. I feel really bad for my mum. Like, three kids alone all the time, you know, husband is not there to support you f- Shit, I wouldn't be there either. Like, <laughs> let's be honest. Like, yeah. Somehow the the narrative is screwing the people trying to uphold it, and all the people that it imposes that them upon. Yeah, basically the whole the whole kind of gender system is uh, completely corrupted. Have you got so. it? So, is that how would you approach that with your like divorce dad's project? No, no idea. No, that's why it's on the back burner. That's yeah. I haven't <laughs> actually got to the point. I just feel like feel a deep connection with you know what I understand those people to be. Mm. So um, I kind of want to hang out with them, <laughs> and yeah, but I have no idea what that shape it would take or yeah. Got any other things like that? I have a whole list of them. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> Some people are like, no, I haven't really got an idea. Like, I have a list. No, I have a, I have a list. <laughs> oh, another one I'm really into is um, um, Chinese, ha- like, home buyers and their international student children that, kind of are this uh, like s- s- economic scapegoat and, and not even it's you know it's not necessarily invented either i mean you know it is but it's like huge every but. yeah every stereotype has come from something or yeah, every archetype yeah. has come from something but the amount yes just yes <laughs> i'll let you keep going <laughs> let's go yes. with that yeah. um because i speak chinese and i've like lived i've been i've learned chinese through all through childhood and and up up through uni and i've lived there for a lot quite a lot uh, quite a few times so um i feel like yeah really curious about the chinese population who comes to australia and like buy all the housing so my generation can't afford it and who you know, basically prop up the universe, their children prop up the university systems and stuff. So um, I've really wanted to work with them for, I've tried a few times, but it hasn't really worked out. But, but what, would, what would you do? You just ask them questions? Or? I think I want to do family portraits, but it's a really, it's a really, it'd be hard group of the population to access basically. But, yeah. you know, like, like uh, all the houses around, primary schools in like Hurstville and stuff it's all like Chinese invest, like Chinese home buyers um, from China not like- yeah who are like they want to send their kids to like a primary school or a, an Australian primary school so they immigrate and buy the house so it's you know it's like it's a wave it really is um, so those are the kind of people I want to access so I, I think I want to do family portraits but 
How and are they hard to access because they're in a different socioeconomic class or is it because you can't just knock on the door? I think they're a different – oh, culturally different, class is different, stage in life is different. Um, and it's also like why would you let some like Aussie girl come poking around your house? There is um, there's a music video called Save That Money and it's a rapper and – the song is in the middle of the music video, but on each end you see the behind the scenes footage where he's they've they've driven around um Beverly Hills or a suburb like this and he's just buzzed on door after door of the mansions and said, Hi, I'm a rapper. I don't have any cash, but I need to shoot a rap video. Can I have fifteen minutes in your flash pool or your backyard or your like massive marbled stairway? And eventually they, there's a woman who's like, yeah, all right. And they go into her house and there's just cuts of this dude, like stubble, not real flash or anything. And I forget his name, but yeah, the music video is called Save That Money. That is fucking brilliant. And then you see the end, the making of, where they get in touch with T-Pain and he's shooting a video clip. And they're like, hey, do you mind if we just off to the side rap to my own camera with all of your stuff in the background, like the girls and the cars. And he's like, yeah, it's cool. What? <laughs> yeah. That's so cool. It's really cool. He's on yachts and stuff. He goes to a Lamborghini dealership. Oh, my God. He's like, like, the class struggle is so real. Yeah. Oh. And he just hits him up and he's like, okay, hey, I'm making this video. I haven't got any money, but you know what rap videos are supposed to be like. And, and I love how everyone else is like, yeah, rap videos are meant to be like that. <laughs> Completely, like no one questions. They're just like, cool. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, except maybe <laughs> Macklemore that does this like hipster version of a rap video where it's still all the people and the stuff, but it's a moped. Yeah. Rather than a. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. I like that. Thanks for the suggestion. That's quite inspiration. Maybe that's maybe that's the form it would take of me just like knocking on high Chinese sub you know um immigrant is suburbs an, is there an accent that you'd have to master to be taken seriously no i think people just find the fact that i speak chinese pretty novel and they're like oh cool sure also chinese people are like in my experience they're like some of the most open hmm. like playful um experimental people i've ever met like on the whole, I feel culturally they're really different to us in that way, and that like, um, they're just like super open. They're just like, sure, like that, like they don't have this. They're not like really precious over their time or who talks to them. And then like, like for example, um, I lived in Beijing for a while, and the last time I was there, I did a project where I asked because I, I don't know if you know much about like the current kind of situation over there, um their cities are basically um, in this constant state of regeneration on in a physical sense. So like really old neighbourhoods are getting knocked down, people are being move, moved out of the city and then they're being replaced by apartment blocks. There's like a, you know, like a super like hundreds and hundreds of year old village, uh, um, network of villages along a river that have all been flooded to make way for a massive dam it's like a whole thing like countrywide people are losing um their 
places that they would identify with and they're being replay they're being um uh, what's the word re my english um <laughs> what am i what am i trying to say they're being removed and put into other places and and they and these kind of new national dialogues take place like their kind of personal histories are being replaced by um kind of invented force fed national narratives so in beijing it's whack it's heavy it's so heavy i mean because that's exactly what happened to australia with the imperialist narrative and then the anzac narrative yeah right totally and then the race narrative after feminism kind of started pushing back against the patriarch narrative right uh this isn't a developmental sense it, that I guess what makes is uniquely this situation is that's tangible. So these places did once exist and they don't anymore, and they've been replaced by new places. Anyway, so I was in Beijing and I was kind of asking people to tell me their favorite memory or a memory that was important to them, and then we would go to the place where that memory happened and try to reenact it, but in this new kind of foreign, on sometimes foreign camera. environment on camera. On, yeah, on camera. Um, it's like when you go, maybe it's not like this, but the thing you reminded me of is when I'm at Circular Quay and I see those little pins in the ground that say Shoreline from 1788. Yeah. And I think... What the hell? That's exactly what I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's like if you ask someone who was around then to come and like reenact what they would do in that space at that time, whatever. Yeah. So it was about like performing you know, reinforcing personal identity through performing memory in the face of, you know, really destructive and quite hurtful change um, that you had no part in. Anyway, people were just, like, so into it. I'd be like, yo, like, do you want to do this thing? And they'd be like, yeah. It's like no one, you know, if you tried to do something like that in Australia, you would have to have, like, these really deep running networks and you'd have to, like, kind of, you know, prove yourself through yeah. all these different kind of social expectations or whatever. But in China, people were just like, I got nothing on. Like, sure, I want to talk about that thing. That sounds really fun. And so, and that that is just one experience that has made up my my um, belief that like culturally they are super anarchistic and open and like really like they don't have the, like like barriers, the same kind of barriers that we do, mental barriers. Mm. So maybe they'd be really into me being like, yo, so you live here now. Like, can I come and like take a video of you in your house? <laughs> it's possible. It's possible. I don't know. Um, is there a equivalent to yo that you would actually say? <laughs> um, there's a word, there's like a... Um, what, there's a word for it. God, a f. It's like in Chinese, they find the phonetics, the sound that is phonetically most similar to English to be like cool language. So there's like a word that's like hey, <laughs> which is like hey, but it's a Chinese word for it. And so it's like an anglified version. Anyway, so you just be like hey, like <laughs> some la, like what's up? So, yeah. And if you did portraits, would they be like a, a video portrait in the sense of something like 
uh, samsara where people still are s standing still and the but the frame is video or do you imagine that you follow them around in context no, no. and in action stuff that the frame there's people <laughs> staying still um there's a really awesome work that I've never forgotten that I really want to do something like that once at one time, which, yeah, but um, it's by this uh, British woman called like Gillian Waring, I think. And she, in like the 60s, asked this whole police department, she asked to take a portrait of them. And then she asked them to stay, stand completely still for an hour in front of a camera and so it's this hour-long video of, like, this perfectly, you know, lined up. Like, everyone – it looks like a really official photo shoot. But there's these, like, tiny imperceptible blinks and shudders and movements. And it's, like, all, all about, like, you know, how, like, structures of power, if you look at them long enough, actually crumble. Because people go crazy. It's like this, like, um, Abramovich-style, like, endurance performance thing for them. Um so I'm really inspired by that idea, basically. Yeah. Like, that's what I meant when I said family portraits. Yeah, right. I remember um, doing army cadets as a teenager and going to the dawn service and out of the corner of my eye seeing people that were next to me when we were staying at attention for half an hour and an hour just sway a bit. And then every year there'd be a few that would actually just black out but on their feet and they would fall because it's just not the somehow the um, expression or performance of authority and line right. and structure. <laughs> eventually, the body's like, "Well, you don't need me," and clicks out. <laughs> and oh, there's, so there's hilarious. all these tricks that you use because your shirt hangs over your uniform with our current iteration of uniform, so you can clench your bum cheeks or you can wiggle your toes and your boots to because, keep yourself awake yeah to keep your central nervous system somehow still um thinking like it's got anything to do wow that's so cool yeah that's a good insight actually that family portrait idea came from like something i wanted to do years ago which i still want to do but i have no access to if you're we're still on the question of what other stuff do you want to do. Definitely on oh. the question. <laughs> a bit why we might be listening to your heartbeat, though, instead oh, of your... Yep, yep. Which would be nice. Just yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, is that uh, China has a crisis, a gender, gender ratio crisis um, up, com like coming up, but they're currently experiencing it. So there's because of the one-child policy and all the female infanticide that that caused there's like over 20 million more boys than there are girls and they're these are preschool aged boys so in the countryside there'll be primary schools where there'll be like one girl and like a hundred boys um apparently in this city it's not as prevalent but in the countryside it's like kind of obvious in some areas so one thing I really I like it's like I said it's like that's kind of like a really late career <laughs> project but I still really want to do it um where I'd go and take like school portraits of these kids um in a way that like highlights how bad things maybe, are going to be for them you don't need to highlight anything like yeah it's well, it's it's obvious. Yeah, it is obvious. obvious. But the thing is, when you when you say these stats, and this is the great problem with China, 
when you say these stats um, in any other country that's not China, people are just like, oh, wow, cool. But like when you go there and you see it, it's like how are people living like this? How is this okay? Like this is this is a human rights violation. This is a great failure of um, some of the things. Like some some of the things. Obviously, this is a, this is a great failure that shows that the failure, our innate failure, is people as humans. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, it's the the figures are crazy enough, but when you can actually see these boys and see how bleak their future is in a lot of ways, um, I don't know. I find something really poetic in that, but. It's. It comes. It, there seems to be this running thing where there is information, and there is embodiment of that information to the point of having a response as a human that is empathetic to others, and some of that is starting to happen with uh, climate anxiety. But a lot of that is not yet happening with gender discrepancy, anxiety. Like it's not being embodied in a way where people are moved to take action on it or where there is any action that can be taken. What do you do? Do you have 20 you million do? girls? Yeah. What, what, is there a what country with many more girls? Russia, <laughs> which is next door. <laughs> yeah, right. But they all, they already, like, there's a problem of, like, bride trafficking from North Korea and stuff because already people are feeling the effects of the gender um, discrepancy in China. But, um, yeah, I mean, I'm not, it's not really like a call to action or anything. I don't, none, none of my work has that purpose. It's just more about, like, yeah, fostering kind of like a tangible experience of other people's suffering in the way that the individual can um, respond to it appropriately. It's not like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that's so nice. I remember a residency that I had out at Legs on the Wall and it was run by Lucy Parakina primarily um, from We Can't Unhappen. I think they made a project, but that wasn't the name of their collective. Um, and Jimmy Dalton and... One of my collaborators was Bravo Child and I, and our whole aim was to make the internet more tangible and not the web and not websites and not data and not ones and zeros and not electricity, but the wires that run around the globe for us to be connected to oh each God, other. God, that's so awesome. The servers. Yeah, the actual cables that come up out of a beach with penguins milling around and into a building. Shit, yeah and where they come from and that we look at Australia as this thing that is separated by water and actually there are multiple points of big fat fiber optic cables lying like an extension cable from someone's house to somebody else's house <laughs> <laughs> and it just comes out of Perth and goes up into Singapore and it comes out of um, Sydney and goes up in like and then goes up through all these little islands that at one point were just um, under imperial control and still are or are not in such a obvious ways. But um, to somehow, mm, yes, that, like it wasn't a call to action at all. It was to say, 
this thing that you use that you say that you don't understand, it's, it is analogous to running extension cable from next door neighbor's house to yours and if there was a puddle in between or something, <laughs> that's what's going on. I totally am into that. That's so great. It's like, yeah, some work is, is I mean, it doesn't have to have some great hypothesis that the majority of my work doesn't, it doesn't have this, you know, great thing that I'm trying, trying to achieve. It's just like, I don't know about that thing. Like I, I want to know about it. What do they look like? Um, how can we have a more tangible relationship with the internet? Um, There's a movie about gender imbalance in India called It's a Girl. Um, I don't know if there's a similar one in China, but I was just thinking if, yeah, if, if China and Russia need to pair up, I don't know who India is going to pair up with. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think about uh, intercultural and interracial um, love and offspring as a way beyond racism. Right, interesting. Like, a, like as a solution? Uh, as like a very tumultuous stepping stone in a lot of places. <laughs> um, but just that the idea is that uh, love can bring two people together who culturally shouldn't be together and their shared love for their children can ripple up through generations of other parents and brothers and uncles and aunties who have um, racist tendencies that they learnt but they had never met anybody of that race but now their child, their grandchild, their niece is like one of those people mm. and they love their niece mm. which, which is not to say that it's easy for those people in a lot of places around the world but it seems like it functions in that way sometimes yeah because uh, my mum is from Malaysia so and she's like you know she's like um, came here when she was like 20 or whatever and her, I guess her experience is both sides of the coin in that married my father, um, you know, conservative, Queensland, um, Queensland origin, dairy farming and um, religious kind of group of people. Um, dad claims that there was some racism against her, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Um she became integrated into that community and, you know, it was a triumph in so many ways or whatever. But then she left my father for this other guy who just, like, not that long ago was like, um, it's, you know, it's they, they have a kid, can I, I just say. Um, you know, it's good that you guys were colonised by the English because you were so primitive and all this kind of crap. So, like, you can be with someone and be racist against their culture and just like think that their culture is garbage and that they are different or something yeah and, they're and an exception i don't understand how they relate to each other but he was just like um you're you know you guys were colonized because you were just like um primitive village people of course you like you should have been colonized so that to her face his son is half malaysian 
I was there. I'm half Malaysian. And I was just like, what is this cognitive dissonance you live in? Like, what the hell? But, you know, I've seen it with my own eyes. It can happen. So, I don't know. Let's let's call bullshit and cognitive dissonance. On that. On just that it somehow perpetuates itself. Uh, the whole concept in itself or yeah that seems to be like a huge anchor for what's going on with our discussion and then with your activity is that there are things that are happening that are not affecting us enough for us to respond and uh, adapt to taking Mm -hmm. action on them or at least to think that to realize that what it is that you think and what actions you're taking are not related and so, like, this dude who's with your mom who thinks these ways but then also must think this other way simultaneously mm. so that he can be with your mom and yeah. so that he can love his son. Yeah. Somehow he's not talking to himself. Yeah. Oh, no, that's clear that there's some sort of inner dialogue that is either corrupted or missing. Like data. Yeah. <laughs> It's like error code 36 on that guy. There's something fucking wrong. Finder cannot complete this Error code operation. 36. Operating on old narrative. <laughs> <laughs> Current circumstances are incompatible with yep. the old narrative. Yep. So, we're going to like put a patch but not replace the narrative. <laughs> yes. That's it. Um, yeah, right. Well... I like it. I like it when I'm in a podcast and I say, this is what I reckon. And then the person I'm talking to obviously has way more experience with that thing that I do. And they're like, well, I won't say outright that you're a dickhead, (laughs) but my experience is a little more related to experience. (laughs) My opinion has been from the actual experience I've had, not just like from a distance. I heard someone say that once yeah it's like yeah exactly <laughs> or yeah. Tell, tell me what are you about to say um that it's hard for me to know what i have authority to think that i know or what i am what i have legitimacy to know or to not know because i think that I had, because of my belief in love and because of my own experience in spending time and love with people where their cultures exist on a gradient rather than a binary, mm-hmm. um, that I just like said that rainbow rainbow plus waterfall equals excellent day or whatever but that's not really a mathematical equation (laughs) (laughs) what do you mean what do you mean by that equation i mean can i because i haven't faced these problems personally i haven't faced Mm -hmm. these problems they're not but for some reason i think that i have seen the way around these problems mm-hmm. and then uh, by intermarrying is yeah, this bad? <laughs> yeah, shit like that or i don't know i remember once telling lauren that i 
when I'm hanging out in Chatswood for long enough and I'm with all the boys that I grew up in Darwin breaking with who are all fellow or Chinese or I am uh, when I was tour- traveling we weren't touring we were like we were doing photo shoots and stuff but mainly for fun <laughs> when I was traveling with them through KL and through Vietnam and through Thailand and I'm the only dude that looks really white in the group um, or really Anglo, Anglo. It's a very white Chinese-looking people, but really Anglo. Then, at those like one or two times in the day where you would come across a bathroom that had a mirror in it, that was the first white face I'd seen that day. Right, and you'd be like, "What is going on?" Yeah, and so there's like a weird thing where I, I once said to Lauren that I can forget that I'm different. Or I forget that I can forget that I'm white. And she made mention, I, I can't, I don't know what the actual quote was, but she made mention that that's probably not true in the reverse. Other people around me are probably not forgetting that they are philo or that they are. Maybe. Asian yeah. or I mean, obviously, like you said, you can't really speak from other people's experiences, but I forget that I'm half like all the time. But like constantly I don't like I look at myself in the mirror sometimes and I'm like or I see a photo of myself and I'm like shit I look Asian like, <laughs> I'm not even joking I also forget that I'm a woman like co- like pretty consistently as well so what I do you think it, what do you think it is about um, operating a way where you just become what it is that you're around and spending your time with and like how, how that process um, happens yeah yeah I don't know if it's about absorbing your environment. Maybe we're talking about different things, but isn't it just the reverse? It's like kind of about, you know, understanding who you are without, you know, kind of artificial labels and stuff. Mm. Like you were in that environment and, you know, you were not that you're constricted here, but it just kind of really didn't even matter. Mm. Um. But maybe it's the thing, I find this is why I like having an audience when I'm performing dance, a dance show, um, is the clap at the end is really nice, but actually the feedback that leads up to it and dancing with other people and having fellow performers is that you get to know yourself by the reaction that you get. You get to know what it is you've just done by the reaction that you get back from it. And not always whether it's good or bad, but just how it is affecting. Which I I wonder if that happens for you at all because you're working in so often in video where like you're not sitting next to somebody when they're experiencing the thing that you've made. And so it's like your audience is not the people you're watching the reaction of, your your um interest group the people that you're spending time with to make the thing are your people that help you know what it is yeah i think the feedback um isn't as instantaneous as it would be in your field mm. like you kind of have to look for it a bit more and just into the detriment of the work sometimes like i yeah i guess i would uh, yeah you have to kind of search that feedback and product and kind of actually yeah um yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm not asking for an answer. 
Um, that pipe's cool. Mm. Um, okay, so we've done what? What do you do? Make some shit and you like have questions and then you spend time with people. To answer them, yeah. Or yeah. to answer them for myself, I guess, yeah. Yeah. And it's nice that the way that you're answering them for yourself ends up in some kind of shareable asset that other people can experience. Mm-hmm. And then how is also, we just said that, but then why? Like, what's your biggest hope for this these efforts? I think I kind of touched on this in the last project I did mm. with the YouTubers, which kind of came back around as to why I was so fascinated by them, is that... Um, I feel like YouTubers do what artists do but in a different, much more transparent way in that they are – they have these channels and they have all these like really complex kind of audience growth models and they do all this – you know, they release it this time on this day to maximize, optimize the na-na-na-na and then they, you know, use this certain type of content to get the most amount of audience um, or most amount of – yeah, most amount of views – on their YouTube channel. And so it's like this like hyper condensed pressure cooker, not pressure cooker, but like your very transparent way of like fostering an audience. And when you talk to them, it's, I, it became really obvious to me that, it, like I said, it came, it was a result of loneliness and it was, um, and it was a kind of constant desire to be accepted and loved. Um, but but yeah like offering a kind of okay so these people are like vloggers and stuff and they're like singers so their performance is very physical as well it's like what they look like and there's makeup tutorials and stuff so um i guess it's a constant vying for adoration and that was what part of the loneliness that i was talking about or the loss kind of touches on and then i realized the reason i was so into youtubers is that that is my why in so many ways. I just like I comp- I really respected what they did because they did a much more like hyper extended version of what I guess my practice is about, which is like being able to expose yourself to people and have and have people accept and love you for it, uh, and 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 also more importantly understand you as well. So, um, in the simplest way, that is the why is like hey, this is what I'm thinking about, this is my perspective, and then hoping that, you know, my lone kind of, um, what's the word, my satellite kind of floating around in the darkness will find someone else who who understands that mm. and by extension understands me. Yeah, it's kind of lame, but that's the best answer I've got so far of the why. It, also, like we talked about this as well. It's like when we when we went for a walk that afternoon. It's also like it's just kind of like a dumb reflex as well. Like if you're kind of like creatively inclined, you're just like even if you you know like also what I learned from that project is that you can have this projection out into the space and still no one understands you in the way that you kind of want to be understood. And so in those terms, it's a failure. But then you just do it again. And then it doesn't even, it becomes irrational anyway. So it's also, it's just like a dumb kind of constant reflex to just make something. 
um, even if you you come to terms with the fact that it won't be successful in a lot of ways or it won't be money earning or it won't be people won't understand of it what you wanted them to understand of it so you just do it because you want to that's awesome because <laughs> on one hand I'm like that's what God is for so many people you you want to completely reveal all of yourself and then you want to feel like you can be loved yeah and what God has been replaced by is the public voice somehow there is a public mm, true, that is yeah. separate from you mm mm-hmm. And they, as a collective, become the external that you want to reveal all to because they're not your friends or they're not your butcher or whatever. Mm. <laughs> you don't have to actually see because they're not individual. It's really interesting how we have... We, there, are, there are enough people on earth now that we can generate from their collective a god. Yeah, that's a really good point. I actually never thought of that. Like in the kind of hundreds and millions of views garnered on a YouTube channel or a video is like access to some sort of divinity. Mm, just by but average. people-powered Yeah, people-powered divinity. divinity. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> hey, that's a really good point. I never thought of it that way. That's quite... That's a bit of a revelation, actually. It's like access to the divine... Mm. I mm. like it. I like it a lot. But you can actually, you know, if there are view counts. You can look at how divine. Quantified you divinity. You can quantify it. There's <laughs> metrics to that divinity now. <laughs> and then the other, the, other, the other side to just, if you are so inclined, if you have a need or a question, if you have an itch, then you begin to scratch it. And the, the thing is like, what tool we have been given by what we are exposed to is what we try and scratch that itch with. And if you'd been raised with a guitar, then you scratch it by playing guitar. And if you'd been raised with like an account keeping book, then you scratch it by, I don't know, I guess creative accountancy, money laundering. I don't know. You're trying to be creative. Here. So there's, there's some kind of, blows out of the water for me any type of what you are supposed to do what what is the best tool for the job it's like you have these tools and you have this need and then you start reacting and responding and you that's how you move doesn't seem like there's any better reason like better reason than a dumb reflex yeah yeah, no, I think you're right. That that. Well, I'm right because I said what you you just said. Well, yeah. <laughs> I think I am right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I'm right. Um. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, there isn't a better reason. No, that's how what you said was different. That it's the best reason. Um, and well, that, that's that's like, right. Yeah. I think that's right. Anyway, I mean, because does it mean the same thing? There isn't a better. It's the best. If there's nothing better, it's the best. But then, it, if it, it it's the best, in, um, implies that there's only one, uh, whereas there could okay. be several reasons that are we don't all know yet. Top. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Right. Okay. 
Oh, yeah, I like that. Yeah. I guess that's the why. It's just a dumb... It's like a just a... It's just a... One of many. It's just a... You know, it's like a... It's just like a life sentence into just like... <laughs> doing something that is just ridiculous. And that all your friends and family think is stupid. And it, it it's so risk heavy and is not profitable at all. And you're just sentenced to life to do this. Yeah, you know, life pu- push of um, this rock up thinking a hill. hard and spending <laughs> time around excellent people and uh, having your own opinions. And yeah, no, it's it's, it's it seems good. pretty rough. I mean, I guess whatever. It'd be good if it, you you could. Um, anyway, I'm not going to get into what's. That. Do you introduce yourself as an artist? Not really. I say I have a practice. Oh. I have an art practice. Yeah. But no, I don't I don't really call myself. I mean, yeah, no. No. It's just silly. <laughs> <laughs> because then they say, "What's your art practice?" and you're like, "I just dumb reflex." <laughs> <laughs> I have a silly art practice of dumb reflex. <laughs> They're like, I can't wait to see your shit. Yeah. No, I don't really feel comfortable calling myself that. Sometimes it's the only practical thing to say, but mm. it's not the you know, it's not the go-to. Some people are cool with it for calling themselves that. That's fine, whatever. I like to hold on to the lanyard that I get from doing a show where it's got my name. And then artist. Oh, nice. Yeah. You don't have to say a word. Um, I guess. So, I still have one from Next Wave when I was operating Desert Body Creep. Even though I was the sound technician (laughs) (laughs) instead artist. And I hang, it's hung next to the door where my keys hang. It's like an affirmation. Yeah, yeah. That I get my keys and the words that say there, written by somebody else, say Matt Cornell. Printed in a font, even. (laughs) Not even scrawled on a notebook. It's aerial font. Like, it's not even. Oh, okay. It's not even a good font. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Mm, Daily affirmations. Accidental daily affirmations. Has someone interviewed you yet? I feel like I want to reverse all this. I want everyone. So it's a collected. It's an interview over three years in so far in fragments. Yep, yep. But hopefully, I'm. I think differently than I have. Hopefully, I think differently than I did at the beginning, and at the middle. Mm. Or maybe we're not even up to the middle. Maybe Wombat Radio is going to go for so long. <laughs> this is still the infant stages. Cool. Um. Any more questions? Uh, I yes, the last one is is if there's anything I've missed. If there's something that you want that you feel that needs to be said, or that you want to share, or that you want to ask an opinion of, or ask the world, or that there's just a belief system that you know that you're currently experimenting living by. Mm. <laughs> um, no, I don't know. I guess I kind of reserve my practice for asking the the questions like that. I mean, all the everything's based around a question, you know. 
like all the exploration is like you just like find a person and then you ask them the right question. So maybe, I mean, my obvious question would be like, how do you think you're going to die in the upcoming, you know, climate collapse? But, you know, I'll reserve that for when the time is right. Mm. Um, There's a movie that's coming out soon, which is a foreign film. Not like the movies from America, (laughs) which are domestic films. (laughs) Yeah, true. Uh, But it's called The Brand New Testament. And God lives in a one-bedroom apartment in Brussels. Oh, man. And he's got, a, I think, a teenage daughter who's fed up with his pessimism and bullshit and one day breaks into his study and publishes the death dates for everyone in the world. So everyone receives, I think, a text or an email or whatever that tells them when they're going to die. Wait, does she know he's God? Yeah. Oh, wow. So yeah. she's just fucking Because her him. brother is Jesus. Course. Yeah. Who the fuck is Jesus's sister? <laughs> exactly. How do we not know this? Exactly. Uh, and then the movie is how the world is unfolding now that everybody knows the exact mm. to the second time. Yeah. Uh, and I can't wait to see that movie. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like if you like. I mean, we all know we're going to die, but if you spend, like, a long time or if you spend a lot of time, um, like, playing, like um, thinking about that and also especially if you think it's, it's going to be premature in some ways, um, how does that change the way you operate in, in your life? Yeah. So in that um, reframing, if I consider five generations ago then I possibly have already mm. lived longer than expected as like um, not an elite man of social wealth but a man who has to work <laughs> I'm like 31 <laughs> Sunny bring my slippers <laughs> Tian thank you so much thank you this was a great place <laughs> <laughs> My room. Yeah. It's pretty chill. It's pretty chill. <laughs>